Well, good morning, uh, kids. You guys can go to class. Um, I'm honestly uh, shocked to see as many of you that are here um, with the way the weather is supposed to be. Um, just want you to know, like Nate and there's some other guys that are outside just kind of watching, uh, see what's going to happen outside. And then if it gets bad, I just want you to know, like, we're going to modify the end of the service. We've already made plans, so we're trying to think um, best for you guys. But um, I just want to let you know that people are watching from outside. Some of you are on your phones. Just put your phone down. Just relax. Hear from the Lord. There's guys outside watching. So we're going to be good this morning. Um, we're actually going to take a break uh, this morning from 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the book of Jude. Okay, So we're in Jude this morning. Andrew Ely was scheduled to preach um, this morning, but like half the planet, um, he was exposed to COVID. So you're stuck with me again. So... Um, we're in Jude. In case you're struggling to find Jude, the easiest way for me to find Jude, it's only a one-page book, um, is to go to the last book, Revelation, and then just go back one book. It's right before Revelation. It, it, it just contains 24 verses. That's it. That's all it has. Um, a little bit about Jude. Jude was written um, early, mid-60s. It's um, so our best guess. Um, and we'll see in a minute that, that Jude is the author. He identifies himself early on. So um, we'll, we'll look at its purpose in just a minute, but let me, let me just stop. Let me pray for our time in God's uh, word today. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning that we're not distracted by um, what's going on outside, um, what could happen today. I pray that we would just um, take some time this morning and just get recentered on you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would stir our affections for Christ this morning as we read this incredible book that you've left us with, a book that we often ignore. So Lord, give us uh, your grace today. Help us to see where we need to repent and trust in you. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, let's start in verse 1. Let's look at Jude, um, verse 1 together. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ... And brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The author, he identifies himself in verse 1 as Jude. But his real name was probably more likely Judas. But you could imagine why someone whose name is Judas might want to shorten it to Jude. So he goes by Jude. Um, and in these first few words, Jude quickly shows us the type of man he is. Do you see how he name drops here in verse 1? I am a brother of James. He may, he's making sure everyone knows how special he is to have this famous older brother. In the book of Acts, we learn that James, James is this really famous preacher in Jerusalem. But being really famous preacher in Jerusalem is not what makes James really famous. James also had a more famous older brother, and his name was Jesus, which makes this introduction so magnificent. So follow this. If James is the younger brother of Jesus and Jude is the younger brother of James, then what do we also know about Jude? That he's the younger brother of Jesus. Yet Jude here identifies as the brother of James and the servant of Jesus. I mean, this is incredible. Jude has the opportunity to name drop like it's nobody's business. And he humbly chooses not to do so. This is incredible. 
But like Jesus' other brothers, Jude did not follow the Lord um, during his earthly ministry. But at some point, he realized that his brother was the Messiah, and now he says he's become his servant. I mean, it's not hard to imagine why he and James probably weren't followers of Jesus at first. I mean, how many of you are younger siblings? I'm, I'm, I'm the baby, okay? Makes sense, right? Yeah, I'm the baby. Um, older siblings. It's, it's, it's difficult to live in the shadow of that perfect firstborn child, right? Yeah, all the firstborn are like, that's right. That's who we are. So... Can you imagine living in the shadow that was cast down by being the younger sibling of Jesus? I mean, imagine coming home, Mary just shaking her head at Jude. Oh, Jude, just don't know what I'm going to do with you. Your father and I never had to have this talk with Jesus. (laughs) Jesus never made a C in Hebrew. You know, Jude, so sorry, Mom. You know, I'm not the Savior of the world. So sorry to disappoint you and Dad. Just maybe early on, you could see why some of the younger brothers might not be the biggest fans of Jesus, which I think argues. This is pretty cool. I think it, it persuades, it gives a great defense of the validity of Jesus being fully God and being raised from the dead. I mean, think about it. We can all trick each other, right? Like, you can put on a front. Um, but it's, it's pretty much impossible to trick your family. Like, your family knows who you really are. The fact that Jude and James are now followers of Jesus, I think, is a great defense that Jesus must have been who he said he was. Like, my sister, she's great. She's the oldest. She's the perfect one. But if she was saying, hey, I'm, you know, the, I'm the Messiah, I'm like, Psh, yeah, right. So, I mean, the fact that they are following Jesus, saying, my brother is the son of God, that I am willing to be a servant of his, I think that's a huge statement. I don't want us to miss that. Also, another characteristic of Jude's writing style is he loves to use groups of threes. At the end of verse 1, he writes, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. First, to those who are called, the calling of God. It displays this gracious reaching out to, to bring, to draw helpless sinners into a relationship with himself. This is all throughout the letters written to the church. We see this in Galatians 1, where Paul writes, but when, um, in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, 2 Timothy 1.9 who saved us and called us to a whole, uh, holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Your salvation does not rest on you being good. It rests upon God being good. Next we see he loved us. He calls us his beloved. He loves you, not because you are lovable, but because he is loving. He had perfect love within the Trinity before he ever created us. Many of us have heard the love that comes from John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. But what makes John 3.16 so profound 
is the truth found in just a few verses later. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we're called, we are loved, and finally we are kept. Now the translators of the ESV render this kept for Jesus Christ, but the Greek construction, it's a bit tricky here. Your translation might be different than what's on the screen. The King James says, and you were preserved in Christ Jesus. The NIV says, and you were kept by Jesus Christ. So wrapped up in this little phrase is this idea of of Jesus keeping us, preserving us, and that we're being kept for and by Jesus. And this is one of the most comforting and encouraging thoughts in the entire Bible, is that those who are truly in Christ will be kept by and for Christ. They will reign with him forever. That is an incredible truth for us. So you're called, you're loved, you're kept. Now Jude moves to another series of three. Look down at verse two. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. You deserve God's wrath, but he's granted mercy upon you and poured out his wrath upon his son, Christ. Receiving mercy leads us to the next word, peace. Peace should bring this sense of relief. May we never get over the truth that God has granted us peace, that you have peace with with God Almighty. Ephesians 2 clearly communicates what has happened. Chapter 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has shown us mercy. He has given us peace. And now you have a love multiplied to you. A love added to you sounds more natural, but Judas chose and multiplied. So what's the difference between being multiplied or being added? You know, I'm, I'm not honestly sure what Jude is getting at. Maybe some of you math scholars could maybe enlighten us with something better. But you know, thinking about it, just simplistically, you can add to nothing, but you can't multiply to nothing. So maybe the meaning here is multiplication forces you to start with something. There had to be some foundation. You can't build from nothing. So in love, Jesus has already built that foundation. The next we see Jude's purpose for this brief letter. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what's the purpose? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So here's the side of contending for the faith. It's not only is this the purpose, it's also command. I appeal to you. God has called you con- to contend. Contend means to grapple, to engage, to take on, to deal with something. God is not calling you to grapple for the style of music. The style of music is a preference. God is calling you to contend for the faith. 
Why does Jude find it so necessary to write, commanding them to contend for the faith? We see the answer in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's some key words here. I don't want us to miss this. Words like crept. This means to move slowly, carefully, especially in order to avoid or you know, being heard or, 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 or noticed. So some synonyms would be like to tiptoe, to sneak, to slip in. Then we see unnoticed. I think this is so scary. There, there's certain people in this congregation that Jude's writing to, this audience, um, that are being unnoticed. Uh, these certain people, they're not caring or waving this banner saying, I'm coming to divide your church. I'm coming to divide your church. I'm a bad guy. They're coming in unnoticed. But the good news is, even all the things that, that, that goes on that's, that's unnoticed by, by us will ultimately be seen and judged by the Lord. All ungodliness will go punished at some point. In fact, Jude gives two sets of Old Testament examples where each of these two sets have three specific examples of how ungodly um, people were judged. Look down at verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, there's one, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels, that's two, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, there's your third one, this first set, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, served, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The Egyptians, angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, all had a season, if you think about it, where the sin appeared to go unnoticed. It's like, where are you, God? Are, are you even watching? But in the end, God punished each one for their rebellious ways. Verse 8 gives us some more insight to their situation. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. Jude shows us that when someone goes astray, there's a pattern. What's the first thing to probably go? Well, here they, they stop relying on God's word, and they begin to rely on their own. What we see is they rely on their dreams. Their dreams are their authority, not God's authority. So we must let the Bible be the, be the authority for us, not our, own, not our subjective thoughts. We let the word of God teach us and show us. Then verse 9 shows us a contrast to these first three bad examples. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Some of you are thinking like, I don't remember reading that in the Old Testament. We're reading about Moses, death of Moses. Like, what's going on? It's because it's not found in the Old Testament. This comes from a Jewish apocryphal writing called the Assumption of Moses. Um, it's not part of the biblical canon. 
So, but if you think about it, Jude's audience is probably primarily um, Jewish people, so they would all be familiar with this, um, with, with this point. So um, the death of Moses is very interesting because no one actually knows where he was buried. Deuteronomy 34 says that God, you, to my knowledge, I can't find this anywhere else, I don't think, this is the only time where you see God is burying someone. Like it says God buried Moses, which is pretty cool. Then in verse 9, we see that the archangel Michael, he's contending against the devil. And instead of coming in his own power or authority, he humbly comes in the power and authority of the Lord. May the Lord rebuke you. So how do they respond with this? We see in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and, pun- and perished in Kor's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So here's your second three of bad examples. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Um, Balaam is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. It's so strange. Um, maybe if you're new to the Bible, I encourage you to read Numbers 24 um, and around the, that chapter, you get to understand Balaam. And Balaam's a guy that was... Uh, riding a donkey, and um, the donkey finally speaks to him, which is pretty interesting, right? Donkey just speaking. What I find more interesting, though, is a little bit later that Balaam starts speaking back to the donkey. It's a pretty, pretty interesting passage. Jude says here in verse 12 that these examples are hidden reefs at your love feasts. If you think about it, reefs are pretty sneaky. Reefs are basically jagged rocks just below the surface. The water appears safe, but just below what your eye can see rests something that can just completely mess your boat up, destroy you. These examples of hidden reefs at your love feast. Love feast, that's a strange phrase. Here it probably refers to, um, it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, So these certain people, they have crept in, they're sneaky, they've gone unnoticed in the church, and they're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Sounds a lot like last week's passage. And they're doing so without fear as shepherds feeding themselves. A shepherd's primary responsibility is to take care of their sheep. That's it. It's not a, it's not a challenging mental job, it's a challenging physical job for a shepherd, but it's just to take care of the sheep. But these shepherds are more concerned with feeding themselves. And Jude says, woe, woe to you. Now, don't miss this. This reference to shepherd here, it most likely means that this is not just your average church member that has crept in going unnoticed. But these were most likely leaders in the church. He calls them shepherds. And these leaders were creeping around with sin going unnoticed. Jude continues in verse 4 to address these 
certain people. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, you may be wondering, like, what part of the Old Testament does this story of Enoch come from? Well, it, it doesn't. This is another Jewish writing called First Enoch. It was a very well-known book during New Testament times, so you can see why it might be relevant for Jude to use it as an argument. The point he's trying to make here is, with this reference is that nothing will truly go unnoticed. God sees all things, and all things will be dealt with. You, know, you can trick your friends, you can trick your spouse, you can trick your kids, but you cannot trick the Lord. He sees all. Finally, Jude lists their filthy sin in verse 16. You guys ready to see their most wicked and heinous crimes? You ready? Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. <laughs> there, there are some churches where this could be a description of a member in good standing. Well, yeah, they complain a lot. They complain just about everything. Yeah, they're pretty outspoken on social media, but nah, they're, they're pretty faithful at church. They're there every Sunday. Please don't miss the fact that Jude is comparing this list of sins in verse 16 to the Egyptians, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Korah, Balaam, and demons. And Jude is saying that you, the church members, you are called to contend for the faith. You are to grapple with the evil one for the spiritual health of this church. It's part of what a, being a member hears. You're watching. You're, you're, you're getting ready. So this doesn't happen to your church. So what does your responsibility as a member look like? How do you contend against these false teachers? Well, guess how many ways Jude gives you to contend against these false teachers? Three ways. So let's look at these three ways. Jude 17 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So the first way that you contend for the faith, you guard against these false teachers, is to expect them. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But if you look at verse 18, verse 18 says, In the last time there will be scoffers. You shouldn't be shocked. You need to expect that the church will face an attack. From our point of view, these false teachers, they have crept in unnoticed. But from God's point of view, he knew all along that they were coming. This reminder assures us that God knows what is happening. He's in our midst. He's in control. And he sees it all. We see in verse 19, the result of these scoffers, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So even though God's in control, 
We need to be on guard. We cannot be naive. False teaching could just creep into this church. So we must at least expect it to happen. This is why I tell you guys often, you need to have your Bibles in front of you. Don't just trust the screen. Tony, can you just type in whatever you want and show up there? He could. He gave me the thumbs up. Tony could have written that out. Do you know if Tony wrote that out? You do if you have a Bible in front of you. We need to have the Word of God in front of us. You need to make sure that you're checking, make sure that this is proper, this is good theology being taught. We can't be naive. It baffles me when people are shocked when there's drama in a church. You know what I mean? Like, people are shocked. Ah, that happens at church? I mean, have you ever gone to a gym? Have you ever seen out-of-shape people at a gym? Every time I go to the gym without fail, I see at least one person out of shape. Not everyone who is a member at a gym is physically strong. And no one thinks twice about it. I never hear anyone say, I'm never going to go back to that gym again. Did you see that guy that was in there? I'm so done with gyms. Well, they might say that. But not because of somebody else who's in there. Just like not everyone who belongs to a gym is physically strong, so also not everyone who identifies with a church is going to be spiritually strong. Which leads us to our second command on how to respond to these false teachers. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So first way is we expect them. Second way is you must prepare for them. And then this point has three subpoints that we'll see here. The church is at war. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. We absolutely must be a church committed to preparing, training, discipling our people for battle. Satan hates that you are here this morning hearing God's word. He so badly wants to destroy you and the hope that you have in Christ. He is unapologetically ruthless to stand um, against those who love Christ. Satan never agreed to a code of ethics or rules of war. He could care less about the Geneva Convention. He came to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he attacks where it's going to hurt the most. Two areas where I think Satan has done a great job of, of damage church and family and we must be prepared for that attack to you parents parents do you monitor your children's tv and internet time do you have ways of blocking what they can get on do you debrief after they have spent all day at school or at a friend's house now i'm not saying that you need to shelter your children we are we have far too many helicopter parents already Many of you know that we homeschool our children 
Some people, um, hum, they, they homeschool in order to shelter their children from the world. And some people have asked us, like, man, I'm, I'm, I don't blame you guys for homeschooling. Um, do you guys homeschool because it's so crazy out there? And I, I think there's two ways or two types of how, like, parenting styles work. And, um, and this probably applies for churches, too. So you can parent and you can lead a church out of defense. Defense says it's crazy out there and, not, and, not, and just not safe. So let's just hunker down. Or you can parent and lead a church out of offense. Offense says it is crazy out there, so what are we going to do about it? Let's get ready. Jesus describes this battle taking place at the gates of hell. Meaning we're not sitting back waiting for Satan and his minions to come at us. We are taking the battle to his gates. We want to send our sweet little children out into this crazy dark world. I think this aligns with what Jesus tells us in Luke 10. Jesus says in Luke 10 that he is sending you believers out as sheep among the wolves. It doesn't sound too safe, does it? We don't homeschool to, to protect our children from all the junk in the world. That, that's impossible. We homeschool to prepare and train them to go out into a broken world that desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So we know they're leaving. So we're trying our best to prepare them to send them out. So we must prepare ourselves. This is why you must be on guard all the time. This is why you must guard your time in God's word, guard your time in prayer, even if it only means five minutes a day. See, sometimes maybe you wake up late and you just chuck it all. Don't chuck it all. Just, you may just have to find ways. Keep battling throughout your day, but don't just get rid of everything. So how do we prepare for them? Well, verse 20 Shows us what we need to prepare. Um, the first thing it says is build yourself up in the faith. That's the first sub point. This idea of building is huge. You are the building that is being up, by the way. You are the sanctuary of God. This room is not the sanctuary. We are careful to call this room a chapel because words matter. You are the sanctuary of God who is being built up. You are where God dwells. Not in this room. This room's boring Monday through Saturday. It's just empty and cold. You are the sanctuary of God. Parents, are you pointing your children to Jesus or are you pointing them to a screen? Second subpoint, verse 20, the way we get prepared is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't pray because we're too nervous. We're too afraid that we're not going to know what to say or say the wrong thing. Listen, prayer is simply a conversation with God. If you can talk to a friend, then you can talk to God. You don't have to use these big, fancy words. Just talk like you talk to anybody else, but just direct it to Him. Prayer shows God and it reminds us that we need Him. Dads, it's so important that, you, um, that your children hear you pray more than just at dinner time. Don't be afraid to pray with or over your, over your, your kids. 
Now, others of you, you, you don't pray much because you function out of your own power and mind. And this is, this is where I need to confess this morning. I, I, I function, sometimes I just get up and I just think, well, I'm going to go about my day. I, I'm going to do my day. And then I have to be reminded, like, no, Lord, I can't do anything without you. Prayers and petitions to God shows God that you need him and want to rely on his power, not yours. The last sub-point here, that the way you prepare yourself, is to keep yourselves in the love of God. You see that in verse 20. Here's a command for you to keep yourself in the love of God. That's interesting, just because back in verse 1 we read where God called us and kept us. So which is it? Do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Or does Christ keep us? It's a good question. Do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Or does Christ keep us? Yes. That's my answer. Is yes. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. So this Old Testament passage says this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Well, that sure sounds a lot like God is keeping us, doesn't it? He's causing us to walk. Amen to that truth. He's causing you to walk. Man, I need that. Look at what comes next. And be careful to obey my rules. Huh. That sure sounds a lot like human responsibility. Keeping yourself in the love of God is another way of saying trust and obey. Trust and obey. So how do you contend? First, you expect them. Second, you prepare for them. You prepare by building up, by praying, by keeping yourself in the love of God. And now the third way you contend for the faith is for you to show mercy to them. Verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. You are commanded to reach out to those who have been affected by this false teaching. And we see three categories of people that you are to reach out and show mercy to. Those who doubt, those that you reach out to save or rescue, then others to show mercy, hating the garment stained by the flesh. The reason we show mercy to others is rooted in us remembering who we used to be. We too were stained. We were filthy. We must not become like the Pharisees and think that we have arrived. And that God has called us because he needed us. He called us, why? Because he loved us. Then Jude closes this tiny letter with a beautiful, beautiful benediction. It reads like a, 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 a doxology or a praise to God. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 
so beautiful. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Incredible truth. So you keep yourselves in love, in the love of God. Christ is going to keep you from ultimately stumbling. Man, that is so comforting. Not only is keeping you from stumbling, but to present you blameless. To present. That's, that's such like a, like a formal word. Like, it suggests like this idea like you're introducing someone to a dignitary. If, if you are in Christ this morning, there's coming a day when Jesus will walk you up to his Father and present you to him. Isn't that incredible to think about? Like, hey, I want to introduce you to my father. And when he walks you up to his father, he doesn't say, look at this dirt bag. Look who I found. <laughs> Can you believe he's even here? Look what, he, look what he says. How does he present you? He presents you Blameless. And I don't deserve that. Not just forgiven, but he presents us blameless in his presence. Can you imagine that day? How glorious that day will be. To the only God, he is our only hope. There's nothing else or no one else to turn to. And to him be all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind. Thank you for leaving us with this little book of Jude. How sweet and rich and deep and profound it is, Lord. May our affections for you be a, uh, just be stirred this morning to have a deeper love that we, would, that we would remain, that we would keep ourselves in your love. We know that you are keeping us. You're keeping us from stumbling that you're going to present us as blameless one day to your heavenly Father, to ours. Lord, may that motivate us for missions. May that motivate us to prepare ourselves to protect this church from these certain people that may creep in, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd grow us in the maturity so we don't waver in truth, that we, don't, we won't be divided, that we will be one. Lord, we thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy. Thank you for your calling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.